All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. Our goal in the listener's commentary is to teach the Bible in a clear, down-to-earth fashion so that you can learn the Bible, live the Bible, and share the Bible with the people in your sphere of influence. And here in this session, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Jesus' ministry has been growing and expanding. Huge crowds from all over the place now are flocking to him. Jesus is teaching, preaching, healing, casting out demons, and he's doing things and saying things in a certain way that actually speak of a fairly controversial self-understanding. And so what we get here in this snapshot in Mark chapter 3, 20 through 35, is a picture of people that should have maybe known better reacting to Jesus with suspicion or rejection. Here's the way it unfolds. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And he, that's Jesus, came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And so as Jesus' ministry is growing and expanding, more and more crowds are packing to him. It's just creating so much demands on his life and his time. They don't even have space to eat a meal. And when it says he came home and the crowd gathered together again, home here is Capernaum. That's been the headquarters for his ministry. It's been the base of operations. It's been where he's been living and staying. So he's back in his hometown of Capernaum, and the crowd knows it, and they all flock together to him, and there's so much pressure and so much demand. They don't even have time to take a break and eat a meal. Verse 21, when his own people heard about this, they came out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he's lost his senses. Who are his own people? Well, most likely it's his family. Uh, the reason we say that is because if you look at how this whole episode ends, it's going to mention this, and then it's going to pause, and then it's going to wrap back around at the end, and it's specifically going to mention his mothers and his brothers in verse 31. In fact, his family is going to be mentioned again in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, and we'll note there that it includes Mary, four brothers, and at least two sisters, because it mentions sisters in the plural. And so uh, Mary and Joseph have six kids plus Jesus, so seven altogether, maybe more if there's more than two sisters. And so they got a fairly large family, um, and that's probably who's referred to by the phrase his own people here in verse 21. And they show up in Capernaum to notice, take custody of him because they're saying he's lost his senses. Were they still living in Nazareth? Probably. Did they make this trip to Capernaum to, to bring him home? Most likely. And when we put verse 21 together with verse 20, what Mark is showing us is that the size and the overwhelm of Jesus' ministry and really the growing suspicion and hostility towards Jesus from the religious leaders, well, that seems to have created some concern among Jesus' family for Jesus. They think maybe he's gone too far. Uh, they think that in some sense he's lost his senses. In a more collectivist honor and shame culture, like the culture of first century Israel, well, that just makes sense. Um, it, it makes sense that they're like, okay, he's going too far. Things are getting out of hand. We need to, we need to, for his own protection, but also for the sake of the family honor and the family name, we need to go get Jesus and bring him home before things get out of hand and he brings any more shame and dishonor to the family. So they, they come to Capernaum 
and they come looking for Jesus. Now, Mark's going to wrap back around, as we already noted, to what happens when his family arrives. But first, he wants to pause that and tell us what's going on when they show up. So verse 22, here's what's, here's what's going on at the time that his family comes down to town. Verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. And so you notice you get scribes, scribes we've talked about before. They're experts in the Jewish law, and that means in the Old Testament and how the Old Testament law and the traditions applies today. These guys come down from Jerusalem. Did they come down as an official delegation? Possibly. We don't know. But whether official or not, they come to investigate Jesus and to accuse with the aim of discrediting him. And the two accusations they make are, he's possessed by Beelzebul. Uh, we'll talk about Beelzebul here in a second, but he, it's the idea of having a demon. And he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Uh, and so those are the two accusations that Jesus is doing his ministry really by the power of demons and the ruler of demons. Who's Beelzebul? Well, combined with the phrase, the ruler of demons, and then looking at Jesus' response where he talks about Satan, we get a pretty good idea of how the people of Jesus' day understood Beelzebul. And although the etymology of the word is uncertain, its background and where it came from, the meaning of Beelzebul seemingly transitions from a name of a Semitic deity in the Old Testament, Baal, right? Beel, Baal, um, to an agent of Satan, or in some cases in Jewish writings, to Satan himself. And that seems to be, at least that's how Jesus understood it being used here. Beelzebul also features briefly in the sixth chapter of a Jewish writing, the Testament of Solomon, and in that work, he is called the Prince of Demons, which probably is this idea of the ruler of the demons as here. In fact, the Testament of Solomon describes him as wreaking havoc across the world by controlling tyrants, by causing uh, pagan gods to be worshipped. He's, he's actually blamed for causing lusts in priests. And so Beelzebul, by this time period among the Jews, was really viewed as the leader of the demons and oftentimes as Satan himself. That seems to be how it is used here because that's how Jesus understands it in his response. So look at verse 23. So he, after these guys come down, they accuse him with the intent to discredit him of these two things. Jesus responds this way, verse 23. He called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? So we see that Jesus understands their reference to Beelzebul uh, to be a reference to Satan. Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, Satan himself. And Jesus' initial response is a question. And the point of the question is to highlight the absurdity of thinking that he casts out demons by Satan powers. How can Satan cast out Satan? That just makes no sense. Then what he does and what follows is Jesus goes on to make three statements about why that doesn't work and why that doesn't make any sense. Here's what he says, verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. 
And so Jesus really uses three statements that all make the same point. Kingdom divided against itself. So a nation, a kingdom. If it's if there's infighting and tension, you're, you're going to just knock the kingdom down. The kingdom can't stand. House, in verse 25, probably re- refers to like a dynasty, since we're talking about kingdoms, nations, royal households. That's probably the idea. So if you get a royal household where, again, there's fighting and there's you know, a usurper in the royal family, the royal household is trying to claim the, the kingdom for himself. And now there's tension in the house. That kingdom cannot stand. That house cannot stand. And so he says the same is true of Satan. If Satan has risen up against himself, if Jesus is really casting out demons by the power of Satan himself, then he can't stand. He's divided against himself. And just like a kingdom, just like a royal dynasty, he can't stand himself. He's finished. And then in verse 27, Jesus goes on to say, here's what's really happening. Here's what's really happening. Satan cannot be divided against himself. Why would he do that? He was just going to destroy himself if he does. But here's what's really happening. Look at verse 27. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first ties up the strong man and then he will plunder his house. The first thing to notice in verse 27 is that it begins with the word but. And in Greek, there's a couple different words for but. There's a just kind of a general connective de that means but and now can really kind of a soft general connective. But the word we have here is Allah in Greek, which is a strong contrast. And so we're offering a contrast. Here's your view. Satan is casting out Satan. That makes no sense. That's absurd. In contrast to that, but instead of that, here's what's really going on. That's the force of that word but at the beginning of verse 27. Jesus is now describing what's really happening. And what he says is that in uh, by his ministry, he is freeing people from the power of Satan. In Jesus, Satan's kingdom, his household is actually under siege by Jesus himself. And Satan may be like a strong man, but Jesus is stronger and he has the ability to tie up Satan, bind him up, and thus plunder his house. That's what's going on when Jesus casts out demons. And so that's the point of verse 27. Jesus is saying, here's what's really going on in my ministry. I'm stronger than Satan. I'm binding Satan, tying him up, and I am plundering his household by setting people free from demons, from Satan's power. And Jesus continues in verses 28 through 30 to say that by accusing me of casting out demons by the power of demons themselves, you're actually committing a grave sin. Look at verse 28. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons and daughters of men, and whatever blasphemies they commit, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, this idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit has caused a lot of debate and a lot of questions. But Mark, notice, actually clarifies here what it refers to. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit here in Mark chapter 3? Well, Mark says in verse 30 that the reason he, Jesus says this is because they're saying 
that Jesus has an unclean spirit. Jesus knows he is performing these miracles and casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit himself. But they're saying he's doing it by the power of Beelzebul, by a demonic spirit. And so Jesus says that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and that's a serious sin. Attributing Jesus' work to the power of Satan and the evil spirits is to speak against the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' miraculous ministry and in Jesus' exorcisms. Why does Jesus describe this in such strong terms? Why does he say, man, this is an eternal sin? There's no forgiveness? Well, it seems we need to put ourselves in the sandals of his original audience, his first hearers, and they were Jews. And the Jewish law, the Old Testament law of Moses, had some things to say about blaspheming God. For example, Numbers 15, verses 30 and 31, puts blaspheming the Lord in contrast with uh, unintentional sins for which there was atonement. So for unintentional sins, there was atonement, but for defiant and intentional sins, there is no atonement. There is no forgiveness, as Jesus says. There's no atonement for that. Well, blaspheming the Lord is put into that category, um, and it's uh, Numbers 15 says that if someone does that, they have to be cut off from their people because they've despised the Lord's word and they've broken his commands. They must surely be cut off. Their guilt remains on them. Um, that's very similar to what Jesus says here in Mark chapter 3. They're guilty of an eternal sin. There is no forgiveness. There is no atonement. Uh, their guilt remains on them. They need to be cut off. Jesus, in referring to what they are saying, seems to put the, this idea of speaking against the work of the Spirit in his ministry in the category of this defiant sin and blaspheming the Lord. Leviticus 24, 15 and 16, um, really makes the same point, that whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. The whole congregation shall stone him. And so the Jews understood the serious nature of blaspheming God and the work of God, and they understood the severity of the penalty required for that. And so what Jesus says, combined with Mark's editorial comment in verse 30, put in the context of the Jewish law, seems to be saying that they are in rebellion against God. Their accusations in an attempt to discredit Jesus puts them in the category of blaspheming the Lord, which the law says is such a severe and defiant sin that they have to be cut off from their people. Their guilt remains. That's the issue with what they are doing, and that's what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit here. Now, at this point in the narrative, Mark wraps back around to where he started with Jesus' family. What's the reason for telling the story this way? Why did Mark start with uh, Jesus' own people coming to him to take custody of him? Pause that, tell about uh, these accusations of the scribes, and then come back to his family? Why did he do that? Well, the skepticism and false conclusions about Jesus by his family are paralleled by the rejection and false accusations against him by the Jewish leaders. And so that may be why Mark actually tells the story this way and sets up the scene with the generic description, his own people, rather than the word family to set it up, his own people. It's 
it seems to be primarily referring to family, particularly the way the story ends here that we'll look at in just a second. But it also fits the Jewish leaders. They're his own people too. And his own people misunderstand him and his own people reject him. And so it raises the question, who really are Jesus' people? And that question is answered in verses 31 through 34 when Mark wraps back around to Jesus' family. So look what happens. Then his mother and his brothers came, and while standing outside, they sent word to him, calling for him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. So notice, it's his mother and his brothers. That's why we said that it's his own people uh, refers to his family most precisely. But I do suspect that Mark probably used that generic phrase, as I noted just a second ago, so that it could include the Jewish leaders and their rejection of him as well. So his mother and his brothers come. They are outside looking for him. The crowd lets Jesus know that they're outside looking for him. And here's how Jesus responds, verse 33. And answering them, that is answering the crowd, Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? That is, who really are his own people? Who really are Jesus's family? Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is rejecting his family. In fact, we see at the cross that Jesus has concern for his mother and her well-being, and he actually entrusts his mother to, in that moment, um, the disciple John. So he cares for his mother and his brothers. This, that's not the issue. The issue is here is, who really are my people? And they think he's lost his senses, and they're not really sure uh, that they're not buying into his ministry, and they're skeptical of him. And that means they're not really part of his people. So who are his people? Well, here's what Jesus says in verse 34. And looking around at those who were sitting around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Who really are Jesus' own people? Who really are his true family? Well, it's disciples. To sit around him was a way to refer to people who were disciples. They had gathered around him. They were sitting there to learn from him. His disciples are his own people. His disciples are the new family of Jesus. As Jesus explains in verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, this is my brother and my sister and my mother. Uh, in that culture, the Jewish world of Jesus' day, as well as the broader Greco-Roman society outside of Israel, in that time and place, in that culture, it was a person's family that primarily determined their identity and their social standing. Well, Jesus radically modifies that by saying, no, my true family and true identity is found in my kingdom, gathered around me as my disciples. That's really who my family is. And so if you want to be family with me, you need to do the will of God. And the will of God now is located in and revolves around Jesus and his teaching. That's who his true family is. That's who his own people are. And as we reflect on this little scene here, three distinct groups of people appear in this the scene that embody three different reactions to Jesus. You have his family. 
They're confused by him. They're dismissive of him. They think in some sense things have gotten out of hand. They're concerned probably for the dishonor and shame that he's bringing on their family, maybe even some of the social pressure that they're experiencing because of people's negative reactions to Jesus. And they're fine if he wants to live a normal life as a rabbi, right? Like just come home, be a normal rabbi. That's fine. But what's going on right now, Jesus, this is ridiculous. And that's, that's his family. That's how they're reacting to him. You also have here the Jewish leaders and they reject him outright. Now they consider him evil. They consider him in league with the devil. And then you have the disciples who are gathered around him, who sit with him, who are learning from him. And they're putting his teaching into practice and doing the will of God. Those are the three groups embodied in this story. And it really forces us, as we read this story, to say, well, what about me? Which group am I in? Uh, And obviously Mark's call to us implicitly in this story is for us to be in the latter group, the group of disciples who do the will of God by learning from Jesus and putting his teaching into practice. Hey, it's John. And before we leave this session of the listener's commentary, I just want to say a huge thank you to those of you who, by your generous uh, support, make this ministry possible. Every time I get an email or a text message or some form of communication that says to me, for example, from a pastor, man, I love the listener's commentary. I use it in my sermon prep. It speeds up my sermon prep and helps me grasp the text so much more quickly. That is super encouraging. And I hear that uh, frequently from pastors, both here in the States and around the world. And so your generosity is making a huge difference, not only in the lives of people who are studying the word for themselves using the listener's commentary, but in those who are benefiting from the teaching of pastors in places like Kenya, South Africa, United States, and elsewhere. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you have been impacted by this ministry in some way and want to join the team of supporters, there is a link down in the notes below and you can follow that. Set up a one-time or a recurring monthly donation in order to make it recurring. You just got to click that box that says make this a monthly donation. And at present, all people who set up a monthly recurring donation receive free access to the Listener's Commentary Study Hub. So thanks a ton for your support and may God bless you for it.